Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey there, and good morning at you. It's August 22nd, and I thank God we're going to have some measure of respite, I hope, uh, from our usual conversation. Uh, invariably, of course, the abomination in the Oval Office gets into our heads and we can't stop talking about him. I do have a feeling that we'll, he'll insert himself into this uh, hour as, as well. But we are going to be talking with uh, Pittsburgh sports broadcasting legend Stan Saverin. And um, I, if he needs an introduction, then... Um, well, I'd be shocked. Shocked. Stan, are you there? I am here, Lynn. How are you? I'm okay, and thank you so much for doing this. You know, I was actually uh, badgered by scores of your fans to have you <laughs> have you on the show. It hadn't occurred <laughs> to me to, you know, you'd want to jump on a show like this, but I'm thrilled. Well, I, you might want to take the S off scores. I don't know that there are multiples of 10 uh, out there. But um, even if it's, uh, you know, one guy sitting at a bus stop, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fine with that. Okay. I exaggerate only slightly. Um, geez, I don't even know where to start with you. I have to tell you that having done, we both have sort of plied the same trade for in some measure for a, a long time. And I have always envied uh, you and your ilk uh, the the ease of having sports to talk about. I mean, there's not like, oh, God, what am I going to talk about today? And, and is the world going to end? Uh, you know, the, it's, it's sports. It's, to me, it feels easy. Is, is that true, or am I underestimating what... Uh, what you have to deal with? Well, I don't think it's a matter of, uh, of uh, underestimation. Uh, I think it depends on you know who you're talking to. Um, in the grand scheme of things, um, uh, I suppose it's the proper approach to say, "Oh, it's only a game. It's not." And you know, if you're being realistic about, it, especially what you know we're enduring every single day now. Um, I mean, that's that's true. But I also think it's a matter of perspective. Um, I, I've never been one to dismiss people who are upset um, over the, you know, the Steelers losing in the playoffs or the Penguins getting knocked out. Oh, it's only a game. To us, it's not. It's more than that. I mean, you can quantify it any way you want, but I've never viewed it as, oh, I work in the toy department. Because I know, uh, having been one of them myself my entire life, that it's important to us. Now, some people may look at askance at that and scoff and say, oh, that's ridiculous. But no, it's not, not to those who are, are really into it. And you can dig up all the psychological, well, it's an escape. Well, maybe it is, but at the time it's happening, it's very real. Um, and, and so I always try to, uh, and I didn't have to try very hard to imagine, because I, I was one of those people. I am one of those people. Um, I understand how they feel. I understand their anger. I understand their frustration. Um, and I'm not going to treat that lightly. I think that's dismissive. Uh, and I think, frankly, sportscasters who treat it like that are 
disrespecting their audience. You have to understand it is important to them. Now, you can compare it to other things in the world and tragedies and all that stuff. Uh, of course you can. But at the moment, in the moment, it's not an over-exaggeration. I get that because I, I felt it and I still feel it. Well, I under I do understand that. I mean, I, I grew up in, as you know, Green Bay, Wisconsin. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I lived and died for, uh, for that team. And I have been a sports fan most of my life. I have to admit, I'm starting to be less of one, and I'm not sure why. I think I've got problems with football. I think I have problems with sort of the greed of owners sort of ruining the game or is it is it broadcasting that's is it television that's ruined what's happening it just doesn't seem as good as it was as pure somehow well um i mean the nfl does have uh, uh you know some problems although it's interesting um you know sometimes when things are so uh, incredibly successful, we tend to start looking, well, there must be something wrong here. Whether there is or there isn't, say, well, something's wrong. We've got to find some. Um, and they do have the, you know, the concussion issues. Um, they've addressed that as best they can. Um, and, and frankly, I don't think the NFL deserves a lot of credit for that because most of that, they're trying to avoid litigation. They're trying to avoid further litigation. That's not to say that they don't give a damn if, if their players get their brains scrambled. I mean, I think that they do. But I also think that the grand strategy is to avoid the multi, multi, multi-million dollar payment they had to you know, give the players who had filed suit, and they want to prevent that. And that's one of the things they got with the current uh, collective bargaining agreement is that the players' union agreed not to sue them any further. Um, but there are groups out there that are going to do it anyway. So, I mean, I think that, that's an issue, and there are some, uh, you know, there are some Cretans out there, uh, you know, sitting in their, you know, wife-beater undershirts, drinking 18 beers during the first quarter, saying, it's a sissy game anymore. And, of course, they're sitting there, you know, 50 pounds overweight, you know, eating, you know, three loaves of pepperoni bread. What do they care? Um, and, you know, there's, there's some of that. But I find the game of football, the sport of football, um, there's plenty of hard-hitting, and if that's what gets you off and that's your vicarious thrill, without hitting people in the head. There's plenty of hard contact to satisfy you. Um, and if there's not, then maybe you ought to go to mixed martial arts. Maybe that's more your thing. Yeah. I do have to tell you that I now I have trouble enjoying uh, football, and I've been a fan all my life because I now have this, I have this knowledge of when there's a hard hit and somebody's head is hit, or they're carting some beautiful young man. These look like they're younger than my kid, uh, you know, off. I, I just think, what is, why are, it's a, it feels like a blood sport um, to me. I, I don't know if it brings out the maternal thing or just knowing that these young kids, is what they look like to me, are, are harming themselves. Um, I don't know. It's taken a lot of the, of the pleasure out of the game for me. So I'm one of the people that this CTE stuff has sort of uh, made me, 
I'm I just it's not an absolute that I watch the Steelers on Sunday or Monday or Thursday or every other day that the NFL now has a game. That's the thing. I just think it's oversaturation too. And now they want to it make, is. they want to make the schedule longer. Well, you're right. I, th- I think that's one of the problems uh, is that um, there's too much of it on TV. And, of course, TV pays the freight. Without TV, the whole universe changes. Um, and, you know, the, the, the networks um, are paying billions in rights fees, and naturally they want as many games as possible, more games, more commercials, uh, more commercials, more input, to, you know, defray the cost of what it costs the networks to televise football and by the way, it's a losing proposition. The, the networks don't make money on the NFL, but it's it's uh, for the networks. It's uh, sort of a lost leader. Um, you watch the games. We promote our Tuesday evening ten o'clock show, and you're aware of it. There's no better advertising because you've got a captive audience. Uh, I'll tell you that. I mean, I still enjoy pro football, but what's changed with me and you knew me back when i mean i you know i'd watch beach volleyball at three in the morning just because it was on um uh no longer um uh, i can't stay up that late for one thing anymore but uh if there's a game on there, there's no guarantee that i'm going to watch it now um steeler games that of course is a different story i'm i'm working then um and i do the post game show on their radio network I mean, and, you know, doing a daily talk show, you have to. There's no question about that. But because there's a game, a Monday night game, I very seldom watch Monday night football unless it's really a great matchup or it's a game that affects the Steelers and therefore affects my ability to report on it. But I um, I don't watch as much as I did. I do think oversaturation is an issue. Um, and I, I do think that <clears throat> the, the injury factor – um, I don't know if it's higher than it ever was before, uh, but I, I really think that part of the issue with injuries, and not just concussions, injuries in general, um, these guys are just now so big and, and fast. so fast. Yeah. And they yeah. can run, and even your defensive lineman weigh 300, you know, 340 pounds. I mean, they can run, and they're nimble, and they're quick on their feet. Um, and if you stu- if you stood on the sidelines, I have, and really watch it up close, <clears throat> I mean, you can just hear their feet pounding uh, uh, on the turf. I mean, you, you know, it's like an elephant stampede when they're running, and so and, you know, you see the hitting firsthand. Um, I mean, I think that's that's part of it too. I mean, I remember a day when defensive linemen weighed 220 pounds. Right. Now safeties weigh 220 pounds. You know, when you see, it's true. I remember when I first saw Jack Ham or uh, or uh, or Rocky Blyer. They look so tiny. Yeah. They look tiny. I I can't even uh, imagine. But but I mean, some of some of them uh, was were they tiny in their day, or was that the average kind of size of a football player in that day? Well, I think Ham and Lambert. I mean, uh, you know, they they were lighter for the positions they played. But I, I think even a better analogy um, when Joe Green when Joe Green came to the Steelers in 1969, he was considered a monster at 275 pounds. Yeah, he could not play that position today. Um, I mean, he as great as he was, offensive linemen are all 330. 
um, and no matter how great you are, um, you you can't play there uh, at that at that position. So um, uh, the Steelers' offensive linemen were smaller than normal. I mean, seventies normal, but that's the way Chuck wanted them because he wanted them to be mobile and nimble uh, and quick. I mean, kind of, they kind of set the standard there. I mean, Mike Webster was a small guy. Mike yeah. Mike weighed two hundred and fifty pounds. But his, you know how strong he was in technique. But that's the way Chuck Knoll wanted his offensive lineman. I mean, it's a totally, I mean, it's a totally different universe. I mean, it's just, it just, it, it just, it's just, it's a different game. Well, I mean, if you look at both, I'm thinking basketball. Those the people who play basketball don't look like the rest of us. The people who play football don't look at it. They're sort of like different species in some ways. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, they're they're. They're, they're bred that way. They're bred um, that uh, way. I mean, when, when I was playing high school football, I mean, there was no weight program. You, you know, uh, when you weren't playing football, you were playing basketball or baseball. Uh, now, if you're a good football player, you're training year-round. They, they don't even want you to play the other sports, which I think is a tragic mistake. I mean, they're Why? 17. Let them play. It's supposed to be fun. Uh, but I know that the, in one case in particular – uh, he's still playing in the NFL. He's a local product. Um, he was a, really a star football player, a uh, big-time recruit to Penn State, but he was also a very good basketball player. But the Penn State coaches convinced him, we don't want you to play basketball. We want you to train for football. And so here his teammates were out there. He played basketball with them since he's in the fifth grade, and they're his buddies, and he, and he didn't play his senior year. Um, I think that's that's a big mistake. But my point is, is that um, you know today, from the time if they show any promise, you know they're training for their sport and their sport specifically from the time they're 15 years old, or even younger, or even younger. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. one more question on the head and the helmet thing. Uh, there's no way a hel- we uh, understanding what happens in a hit. Uh, there's no way a helmet can stop uh, the brain from ricocheting off the off the skull, um, it, you know. And I'm wondering, when people say it sounds absurd, take the helmets away completely, and you would have fewer injuries. It, but it would obviously impact the game. But what do you think? Take the helmets away. Well, the helmets have become weapons. I mean, they can become weapons, which is yes. why the league has legislated um, against some of these hits. Um, I don't, I mean, I understand. I mean, I played, um, and I know your first instinct is protect your head. I mean, that's just human nature. Um, and if you didn't have a helmet, you certainly wouldn't stick your head in there. That's right. But in the game of football, people use their hands. They use their shoulders. So if you're allowed to use your shoulder, um, and it happens so fast out there, what if you're not wearing a helmet and you get smashed in the face with somebody's shoulder pad yeah. or somebody's arm? Whether it's intentional, no, I, that, that's not going to work. <laughs> Let me just say this. I can't defend the game as being violent, and I can't defend the game as not being dangerous. It is. That's part of the game. Um, that's not, I, think, I don't think it's the best part of the game, but it is part of it. Now, you're never, I don't care what equipment you're wearing. I don't care how safe they make the helmets. You're never going to eliminate concussions from football. What you can try to do and what they are doing is try to minimize them. 
The drop in concussions um, last year in the NFL, 2018 from 2017, it dropped nearly 30%. Now, does that help the guy who suffered one? No, but it does. You're talking about a third, almost a third less. I mean, they're making progress, but you're, if you're thinking you're going to eliminate them, and we think about the really hard hits and all that kind of stuff, but what if you're an offensive tackle? And what if a defensive lineman is trying to get past you to get to the quarterback? He's using his hands, he's using his arms, and he's going to get his hands in your face. Now, that's illegal, but whether they throw up a penalty flag or not, that doesn't help your brain. It's going to happen. Uh, there's going to be helmet-to-helmet contact. Um, that is not called. Um, when one guy's trying to block a defensive player, you know, that, that's not an open target like a linebacker and a wide receiver. You can't eliminate it, Lynn, which the best you can do is try to minimize it. Um, and, and that goes all the way down to the youth level. But if you want to play, um, and if you're interested in playing, the thought that, well, there's never going to be another concussion now because the helmets are completely safe or we've, we've, we've legislated so it's not going to happen. I, I, I okay, can't defend I it. That, I, I understand. But you said, okay, you, you got another thing in my head. You said throw a flag. Ay, 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 ay. I mean, as a spectator, I am sorry. The game gets stopped every two seconds, it seems, and then we got the guys peering into, uh, you know, the the looking at instant replay. I think that's just destroying the game. It's not good for it. Um, the worst thing about it is, and I'm a, I'm in favor of replay. Um, I want to get it right. My only objection to replay. Um, is when they agonize over a play that your blind grandma saw the first <laughs> time and said, no, no, that's a that's bad right, call. Right. Um, the, it takes too long sometimes. Um, but the, the problem with the flags is that, let's say there's a pass completion downfield, whether it's for a touchdown or a long gain, and you have to wait and l- scan the field. Is there a flag? Um, can I celebrate now? Can I get PO'd now, Dory? I have right. to wait now. But, yeah, it, it happens way too often. And, you know, one thing that they could copy from the NHL, and there aren't many things you could do, but in the NHL they have a penalty for embellishment. If you get hit and you take this dive on the ice and, you know, you look like a soccer player rolling around, which no <laughs> self-respecting hockey player would ever consider doing, right. but, you know, they're trying to draw a penalty, there's a, there's a penalty for that. When a guy pro, uh, me thinks he doth protest too much, uh-huh. he should get hit with a 15-yarder. Don't do that again, trying to fake a penalty and you know get a free play out of it. I think that would, I think that actually would put a lot uh, and because uh, generally it's pass interference, it's you know offensive or defensive, it's those kinds of things that make you sit there and say, wait a minute, um, that, that does that play count or doesn't it? I agree, it's bad for the game, it slows it down. Do you know who Carly Lloyd is? I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. Do you know who Carly Lloyd is? <laughs> oh, the soccer player. Yes, okay, good. <laughs> Trying to trip you up here. Did you No, I I know who she is and I I mean I I'm Did... not making fun of uh, no. I I don't see that much with the women. I think it's more the men. 
Um, you, you, I, you, I don't know if you'll remember this or not. Back in the days when the Pittsburgh Spirit uh, were playing indoor soccer, and I was anchoring the eleven when we worked together at Channel Four. Yeah. I mean, I, I watched these guys, and you know, I, you're on hockey players. There's no tougher human beings in the universe. I mean, I see what the, what they go through, and you know what what it takes. And I was watching the indoor soccer, and I wasn't terribly familiar with it, but I said these guys are rolling around. They, they, nobody hit them. So on the eleven o'clock, I put together a music video of these guys rolling around indoor soccer players. And I put it to the music of Big Girls Don't Cry. Oh, boy. Um, it did not go over well. I bet. In the, <laughs> in the front office at the Spirit. But people seemed to think it was very funny. Sure, sure. And I remember Don Cannon sitting on the set, <laughs> you know, hysterical. It took a lot to get Don to laugh, too. Uh-huh. Well, good for you. I mean, and, and I, <laughs> I totally get it. But I read yesterday that Car- Carly Lloyd showed up at, I guess she was invited to some, she lives in Philly or play, I don't know, she's an Eagles fan, and they had her kicking field goals. And I think the Ravens were there too. Would two teams like practice together sort of, like the, the Ravens and the, and the yeah. Eagles. And she was hitting 55-yard field goals. The the um, one of the guys from the Ravens was hold you know was holding the ball, and some guy I I guess this went viral this you know just one splitting the uprights time after time she's like a 38 year old woman, and some guy who used to be with the Dallas Cowboys said, well hey look, he said if I were the Chicago Bears and a few other teams. I might want, this is somebody who I'd want on my team. And I saw the video. You did? I did, yeah, I saw it. I mean, you know, it was, it was um, uh, like you said, it went viral. I saw the video. Uh, and, and, yeah, I, I don't know how long the field goals were. But the three or four that I saw her kick, I mean, they split the uprights. I mean, That's you right. know, if you, if you uh, it, it, you know, geometrically, <laughs> I think she, right in right, right in the middle. That's right. Uh, I don't know how long they were, and of course, one you know, was fifty-five. Uh, I know that one was fifty-five yards. Well, uh, after what Chris Boswell did for the Steelers last year, he better watch <laughs> well, out. Exactly um, right. You know, and why and couldn't a by woman the way, play that play that role? Because you see, the um, you know the kickers are often just tiny compared to you know they're not meant to endure too much contact i this guy from the cowboys was saying he says down the road some team is going to have a woman uh yeah i I don't know (laughs) i suppose i mean there are other things though you know don't forget she was kicking um there weren't um to to borrow a phrase there weren't 11 angry men trying to get at her to block it that is true um and also, um, you know, kickers, they have to kick off. And that means they have to run downfield right. um, and sometimes, you know, get in the action. Although I've seen many a kicker actually instructed, 
kicky, kicky touchdown. You kick the ball and then run to the sideline. Right, uh, we'll exactly. do our best with the other ten. Exactly. Um, you know, we can't have you out there. Right. Um, I, I suppose, I mean, I suppose um, it, it could happen. But the thing about kickers, um, you know, they're, they're – um, they're like program directors on radio. They come and go, you know. <laughs> um, and and if you if you if you have to cut your kicker, um, you, you always seem to find one. I mean, uh, the Steelers uh, had a very good kicker for a number of years during the Super Bowl years. Um, not in the '70s. I'm talking about the more recent group in '05 and '08. Jeff Reed. Yeah. Um, they got him on a tryout. They had this tryout at Heinz Field. And it was a it was a rainy, muddy day, and they brought in like four or five guys, and they were all out of work kickers, and they brought them in, and they made them kick at Heinz Field because at that time the turf was awful, and it was a difficult place to kick, and the wind swirled, and he won the audition, ended up being a really good kicker, and that's how they found Boswell. I mean, it's a, and, and and you know, and other guys, and some guys failed at one spot, like Sean Sweezum, he came there was very good. So I mean, there's always a group of people. Uh, and I know that the general managers, Kevin Colbert, they have all kinds of players on a Rolodex because they understand injuries could happen. And who's the best cornerback out there that we might bring in for a tryout or a kicker or whatever? My point is there's a lot of uh, unemployed males. I, I I don't think there's anything that would prevent them from hiring a woman, though. Really? I Well, I... I, you know, I'm thinking, was it, is it DeRocher? Yeah, who did it, you know, just for publicity purposes with the dwarf and stuff, right? Can you say dwarf yeah. these days? I'm sorry. Well, it was, um, well, Bill Veck. Um, oh, Bill Veck. Why uh, am Bill, I saying DeRocher? Right, right. Bill Veck. Bill Veck. He brought in a in guy Chicago. named uh, Eddie Goodell, um, right. who was a little person. Um, he had one major, it was a stunt. He had one major league at bat. Um, Bill Veck owned the St. Louis Browns who don't exist anymore, uh, and he had one plate appearance, and shock of all shocks, he walked. He didn't have a very big strike, strike zone. zone. Uh, right, that was the point. <laughs> yeah, and he trotted off to first base, and they replaced him with a pinch runner and uh, was never heard from again. <laughs> hey, I saw something yesterday. Uh, in the New York Times sports section, that and I, when I thought of you, I thought this would drive you crazy. Do you know in the Olympics coming up, there's 2020 Olympics. That's another thing that's been ruined, by the way, the Olympics. Um, uh, break dancing is a sport. <laughs> yeah. Did you know that? Break dancing. I did. Jeez. It was It was a topic on my show, but not for long. I just... <laughs> I mean, some, you know, we hold some truths to be self-evident, <laughs> and it's self-evident that this is just ridiculous. Um, and I, you know, I used to, like, like most people, you know, back in the day, um, and I hate to keep relying on that, you know, when I was a boy, yeah. um, you know, when I was a boy, I don't think they had the Olympics yet. Um, oh, they did. I was a boy in 1896 in <laughs> Athens when they first... Um, but, you know, ABC, uh, Jim McKay, right. the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. Yep. I mean, it was just, it was magic. Yes. Um, I, Summer Olympics, I never watch a thing. Um, uh, even the basketball. I mean, yeah. even the United States team, which, of course, is, you know, an NBA all-star team. You know, they're going out there and they're, you know, they're beating up on Thailand 100-3. to three. You know what? What you know? What's where's the sport in that? That's right. Um, and 
and and you know, uh, you may remember I, I'm a huge tennis fan. Um, I play a lot. I, I love going. I'm going to the U.S. Open next week. I go every year. Uh, but adding tennis or golf um, to the Olympics is ridiculous. Why? Um, it, Why? It's it's. I mean, you know, there are other competitions. I um, mean, I'm sure for the you know the, the players, it won a gold medal. Uh, Roger Federer, I'm sure it's a big deal to represent his country in Switzerland. But I, I guarantee you that he cherishes his, his his Grand Slam championships a whole lot more. I mean, I, I find that ridiculous. I mean, synchronized swimming. I mean, please. Um, yeah, and and break dancing. I mean, how cheap can it be? <laughs> Well, uh, what I hate, the, the, the coverage of the Olympics is just, um, it's so packaged and so, I, I hate, I just hate it. They've ruined it. They have ruined it. Uh, okay, I'm changing up. Who do you think killed Jeffrey Epstein? Um, I think that it was um, a directive from someone outside the prison system. Yeah. Who said, forget about the suicide watch. Yeah. Um, just, you know, just redeploy those guards somewhere else, leave him to himself and his own devices. Because the word's leaking out now that, you know, he apparently had tried before right. um, and, and they stopped him. Um, I think that someone wanted him dead and that because he, uh, my guess is, whoever these people are, they probably said, and it reminds me of, you know, they call me the Godfather for a reason because I love the Godfather. It reminds me of Godfather too. Yeah. When Robert Duvall goes to Frank Pentangeli and said, remember the way they did it in the Roman days? Um, the one guy would kill himself so that his family would be safe. Um, I have a feeling that people close to Jeffrey Epstein um, might have been in some danger if he talked. And if you want to go ahead and do it, we promise we'll take care of your family. They won't be harmed. And Epstein, who was predilected to do it anyway, um, was left to his own devices. Um, who that person or persons are, um, I, I don't know. Um, so you do believe? Okay, I, you do believe he committed suicide, but you do believe that they pulled away. They they let him do it. I mean, they because yes. and, and I do too. And all of these people. I mean, think of the powerful men from government, corporate America, all of the, even royalty, who he had stuff on. Um, there were um, so many powerful people who needed him dead, I suspect. I agree. Yeah. I, I think that's exactly what, what happened there. Um, uh, you know, how does he get to the, you know, if he was on suicide watch, how in the world would he get a rope or a belt or you know anything you know that would even serve um, him hang himself? Um, and, and especially, um, they knew that you know he had been on suicide watch, and all of a sudden he says somebody says, "Oh, he's okay now. He's totally come around." No, I, I totally agree with you. Um, you know they've got you know pictures of him with you know who um, and you know uh, other people involved. Um, uh, who knows how high up it goes? I suppose if I, uh, you know, mention the occupant um, <laughs> at, at uh, 1600 uh, Pennsylvania Avenue, I would be considered a conspiracy theorist. But given what we know, and, I, and I'll tell you something else, 
just remember, whatever you think of Stormy Daniels and whatever you think of Michael Avenatti, testified that she was accosted in the parking lot with her child. Right. And it was intimated that if they continued this, um, it would be, a, I'm paraphrasing now, uh, it'd be a shame if something happened to your family. That's right. And she took that as a threat to her, her daughter. So if, if, if indeed that's true, and given what we know, you'd have to at least consider it, why wouldn't the same thing be true with Epstein? I agree. So let's get to the intersection of sports and the current political climate. Um, because even though, as you say, sports uh, should be, I, I mean, to many, is just a distraction from all of this stuff, is a joyous distraction. I'm, I'm going to quote somebody here. Sports is forever connected to politics and societal problems. Athletes have habitually championed causes that were unpopular in their day. And th that is so true. And then you look at the uh, NFL, uh, the NFL Hall of Fame uh, induction this year uh, with uh, Ed Reed wearing a T-shirt uh, with all the young black men who have been killed by police and uh, Champ Bailey saying, when we tell you about our fears, please listen. When we tell you we're afraid for our kids, please listen. When we tell you there are many challenges we face because of the color of our skin, please listen. And please don't get caught up in how the message is delivered. Politics and athletes um, have forever gone, and, and now more and more athletes are feeling the need. Uh, to speak up, because they're people, too. They're citizens, too. What's your well, sense? I mean, I, I can go back to the 60s when Mohammed Jim Brown spoke oh. out. Yes. And he, he was considered, um, you know, he was considered a radical right. um, because he was hanging out with Elijah Muhammad and Muhammad Ali and so on and so forth. Right. Um, Bill Russell. Uh, there's no more respected guy in sports, and Bill Russell, he too, took the same stance, and of course, so uh, has Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Kareem, exactly. Um, uh, I, I would say, uh, I completely understand what Colin Kaepernick was saying. Yep. And trying to do, I think he made a couple of mistakes. Number one, I think the way he chose to protest got in the way of the message. It blocked out the message. It obliterated the message. Not that he didn't have a right to do uh, that and wasn't justified in doing what he did. But to some, and I, I learned a valuable lesson here. I, I, I'm sorry to get off track. I learned a valuable lesson. Um, you know, you and I think alike in that regard. Um, but I had people both on the air and people that I know. Um, who were genuinely upset by kneeling for the anthem. Um, and I, you know, initially would tend to dismiss that and say, oh, you're being ridiculous. But I, I came to understand that whatever they were feeling, even if I didn't agree with it, it was very real to them. Now, were they manipulated? Yes, um, they were. Uh, but some were veterans. Um, and that, that's why I say that the message that Colin Kaepernick was trying to convey was blocked out by kneeling for the anthem. And, you know, uh, they're obviously the right-wingers 
immediately began to equate uh, equate the two with disrespect for the flag, disrespect for the nation, disrespect for the military, for veterans, and of course it was nothing at all about that. It was right. nothing at all like that. But, and again, my initial reaction was knuckle-draggers, uh, you know, Trump supporters, drink the Kool-Aid, drown in the Kool-Aid, but I, I, and they may or may not have been supporters, but it, it genuinely upset them. Um, so, again, not that he didn't have the right, and I, uh, you know, right-thinking people uh, understood what he was trying to say, and I also think that one of the things that he did, you know, he got very involved in investing money, and I shouldn't say investing, donating money, um, and investing in the community with outreach groups out in San Francisco, police and community activists and all that kind of stuff. But he sort of mitigated that message by walking around with uh, wearing um, uh, pig socks, you know, police and pigs on his socks. Uh, and again, that Whatever good he did in donating money and his time to outreach groups, he kind of negated that. And again, I understand the message, and they're, they have every right. These are facts. Uh, it's not politically motivated. These are facts that you know black people are being killed in the streets, you know, by police. But I think that those two things that he did uh, weren't the best choices because immediately, instead of listening to what he had to say, they were more interested in how he was saying it. But should it have co have cost him his career? I mean, obviously teams are did not want to look. Let, let's let's leave him now that I'm thinking of uh, people who caused Antonio Brown. I had a thought about Antonio Brown today. I think he and Donald Trump are very much alike. I think they both have this narcissistic personality disorder and um, the only difference is, is that Antonio Brown actually has some talent to maybe be narcissistic about but he's a, he's a narcissist and he's a chaos creator and he can't seem to help himself uh, what do you think Trump and AB are they do you see a similarity yeah, I mean, I, I, I do, um, uh, and both are being asked to perform in a team-oriented structure. Um, it's not a monarchy. Right. Um, I, and, and, uh, I mean, the narcissism goes beyond that. There is um, a psychological term for um, it, it borders on, you know, being a sociopath right. with your narcissism. There's a term for it, and I, I can't think of it right now but it's it's i mean it's it's a mental illness i will say this about i mean um i think they're both incredibly stupid um they're not bright people uh i think we can say that um uh with with some confidence um and i've i said this about antonio brown and i don't say i mean i think he's ridiculous um and i i was uh, mentioning uh on a show this morning I watched Hard Knocks last night, and A.B. is trying so hard to be, oh, I'm a great teammate and a great guy. Uh, no, he's not. He's all about himself. And I say this not with any delight or uh, without any malice. Antonio Brown is mentally ill, and I'm not making fun of him. He no. is mentally yeah. ill. 
and forget about the, the burnt feet and the helmet thing and everything else, and even his behavior with the Steelers, which was calculated to get a new contract, because somebody whispered in his ear, and there's nothing else inside his head, so that's all he heard. It reverberated, you're, you're not being paid enough. Um, you know, that's why he, he came back before last season in, in, a, in sort of a sour mood. But when you stop and think about his behavior off the field, who drives 105 miles an hour up, up McKnight. McKnight Road? Yeah. Who throws furniture off the 14th floor balcony right. at a condo? Um, who physically abuses uh, a birth mother? These are not, that has nothing to do with football. I think he's mentally ill, and he is in, not that I care, I don't. I don't care one good damn about him. Um, uh, if you got run over by a truck tomorrow, well, see ya. Uh, but I, I, I think he's mentally ill. Start there. Start uh, there. No, I, I agree with you. He needs help. Anyway, who are the best people you you have met in your career who happen to be professional athletes? The best, the menches. Who are the best people who are professional athletes that you have met? Um, individually yeah. or as a group? No, individually. I want to talk, actually, let's start with the group. Because I remember back in the day when, for some reason, I was sitting with the sports guys back you near know, the editing bays. Um, you, I remember y you guys saying that uh, hockey players were the nicest, and uh, I think football players were the not the nice. Well, you, you had a hierarchy, and it had to do sort of with I think how much money they were all getting paid or how much attention they got. But yeah, so okay, start with that. The in terms of the sport itself. Okay. Um uh, hockey players, head and shoulders, by leaps and bounds, are the best. Um, and I found that to be consistent, good team, bad team, Stanley Cup, no Stanley Cup, just visiting players, opposing players, not even Penguins. It's just, it's universal. I mean, I think it's, it's a culture. I think there's a reason for it, at least in uh, how they deal with the media. I mean, those kids generally, it's changed now a little bit, Lynn, because there are a lot more people, uh, Canadians too, that are playing at American universities and colleges. So it's not all junior hockey, but the majority of the Canadian players play junior hockey. Right. And they leave their homes at 15 or so, um, and, they're, and they play on these, you know, teams all around Canada, um, and they are, you know, tutored for school. Um, and each one of those little towns where they play, um, they have a you know radio station, a newspaper. The point is, A, they're used to being on their own. They're not pampered and coddled. I mean, they're used to being on their own. They travel in buses. Um, and when the game is over, there's going to be uh, you know, a local writer there from the little paper there, the Daily Bugle Gazette, um, or you know, you know, little radio station. C H O C, you know, whatever it is, <laughs> and they're used to dealing yeah. with the media. Right. Um, so I think that's one thing. I think the second thing is, I mean, obviously, hockey is Canada's national sport. And again, it's much more homogenized now. Many more Americans playing, but I, I, I've seen it with European players. 
you know, Russians, Swedes, um, uh, Finns, Czechs, um, they all get absorbed into the culture. But especially Canadians, that's their national sport. And to those kids, it is such an honor, an honor to be playing in the National Hockey League. That's their goal. Yeah, young kids, football, NFL, baseball, major leagues. But to them, it's, it's almost holy um, to be an NHL player. And I think they respect the game. They respect the traditions of the game. I mean, you know, the, the same things that they're doing today, they did 45 years ago when I first came to Pittsburgh. Um, it's just hockey. And, and, and hockey has a great way of policing themselves. Um, if you had a football player like Antonio Brown, who catches a touchdown pass and then jumps crotch first into the goalpost, as he once did, you know, that was supposed to be entertaining. If a hockey player did that, his own teammates would beat the crap out of him. Yeah. They police themselves. There are some things that are done and some things that are not done. So the Back bigger, in the day, yeah. go ahead. I was, so the, bigger, the biggest prima donnas in sports are what, in football or basketball or baseball? Well, I mean, at the time we had those discussions, um, baseball was the worst. Huh. And in fact, I had this discussion uh, just a couple of days ago about athletes today. Um, athletes, baseball players back in the 70s and the 80s, there were a couple of factors. Um, number one, free agency began in the mid-1970s in Major League Baseball. And with that, salaries skyrocketed. Back in 1978, Dave Parker, the Pirates, became the first million-dollar ball player. He was the only one. Wow. Today, um, you know, a, a utility infielder who, who hits 149 makes $3 million a year. Um, so the more money they made, the more special it made them feel, the more anti-social they became, certainly anti-media. They were very difficult to deal with. People talk about, oh, that we are family, 79 Pirates. There were several big-time a-holes that populated that locker room. Believe me when I tell you, that you're clubhouse. Gonna, and you're not going to name names. I can. Go, go, name names. Name, you want me to name names? Yes, sure. Bill Madlock. Okay. And this is going to shock a lot of people. Willie Stargell. I thought you were going to say Willie Stargell. Oh, my God. Um, and Burt Blylevin. And now, there were some great guys in there, too. Mike Eastler was a great guy. Uh, Phil Garner was a great guy. Ed Ott was a great guy. Um, and, and uh, you know, there were, there were plenty of, you know, really good guys in there, too. Uh, I, I was going to include Dave Parker was very difficult with the media. But I always liked Dave. I respected him because... Remember, you know, people were throwing batteries at him and all that kind of stuff. Right, right. right. Uh, but he never backed down. He didn't care. I mean, he was going to be Dave Parker, and I, I respected him for that. Um, but it was very unpleasant to go in there. And, I mean, Chuck Tanner was the nicest guy you'd ever right. want to meet. Yep. Um, uh, and Jim Rooker was just a wonderful guy. I have a nice relationship with him even today. And I mentioned Phil Garner and those guys. Um, but interesting story about Willie. 
you know, the drug trials came, and, you know, he was implicated, passing out amphetamines and so on and so forth. I never saw it, so I can't report on it. Um, but when Willie left Pittsburgh and then he came back as sort of a goodwill ambassador, that Kevin McClatchy brought him back, Willie was a changed man. Huh. Willie, I think, realized what being in Pittsburgh meant to his life. And he was a totally different person. And for whatever reason, and I suppose that applies to everybody, um, he liked me. Uh, you know, I can't, I can't speak <laughs> to anybody else that would think that same way. But I developed a really nice relationship with him and did a couple of really long, expansive interviews with him on TV. Um, and I spent a lot of time at spring training. I remember one day um, sitting in a, a golf cart with him. He was having trouble walking. And this is about maybe a year before he died. And he um, had lost his thumb. And the story was that he was, you know, uh, making a salad and he cut it off. The truth of the matter is, is that Willie was diabe uh, diabetic, diabetic, and he oh. didn't take care of himself, and he lost a limb. Yeah. And I, I, I knew that, and what, we were sitting in a car in Bradenton, in Pirate City, and I sat down to talk, and I said, you know what? I said, Willie, I've been a diabetic since I was in high school. And I said, if there's something you want to talk about, um, I, I'd be more than happy. And I've done that with other players, too. The Steelers had an offensive guard. Um, who uh, was discovered, and I, I just went to him, and I said, look, I don't mean to be out of bounds here, but I've been dealing with this since I was 17. Right. Um, and because of that, I developed a real bond with Willie, and I was really just devastated when he died. And he changed. He, he was so delighted to be back in Pittsburgh and so revered. So he changed. Um, uh, but anyway, baseball players, because of those things, and I think the drug trials, and they got really defensive, you know, about that. Yeah. You know, they didn't want to be associated, uh, and I think that they were difficult to deal with. I would say this about football players. The Steelers of the 70s, not universally, they were great guys. I think it's one of the reasons they won so much. Yeah, they were great players. I mean, you know, nine of them in the Hall of Fame, but they were really good guys. And I also think I don't have much contact with the players today. My job's changed. And I don't get in the locker rooms as much as I, I once did. <clears throat> I don't go to Latrobe like I once did when I was at working with you at four. I was there every right, single right. day. Right. I could name every business on Route 30 by heart with my <laughs> eyes closed, yeah. driving back and forth. But I also think what changed when I was covering the 70 Steelers, the players and I were the same age. Yeah. And not that we were on the same plane, but I remember having lengthy conversations with um, Dwight White in particular, God rest his soul, he was a wonderful guy. But, you know, Dwight and I, he would bum cigarettes off me. <laughs> and uh, we'd sit there in the, lo in the locker room at Three River Stadium um, before he had to go to practice, and we'd talk about all kinds of things, sitting there smoking cigarettes. And, and, but, you know, we were the same age. I was a couple years older than he was. But, I mean, I, I think that was a major factor. Today, I mean, I'm sure I walk into these locker rooms, and they go, oh, who's that grandpa? And, and, you know, unless the PR director said, you know, he's okay, which thankfully the PR directors do. Um, I mean, I have a different relationship with the hockey players because up until fairly recently, yeah. I did a fair amount of traveling with them. I traveled on the charter, um, and just before we run out of time, you know, uh, you know the people, I mentioned Dwight White. Uh, I mentioned Phil Garner, I had a great affinity, Jim Rooker. 
a great affinity, um, you know, with him. I had a very good relationship and still do with Jack Ham because you'll remember he was my partner yes, when I we do. were doing Steelers games on right. Channel 4. Right. And I was the one who suggested Jack for the job, actually. Mm-hmm. The first football game Jack ever did was with me. And somehow he managed to survive and thrive <laughs> in spite of that. Um, uh, hey, Willie, Stan, we've, uh, became... we've, got a, we've got a caller, and I, I'd like to let him in. Can, we, can I? Sure. Okay. Uh, caller, go ahead, please. Stan Lynn, love the show. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I hey, promise listen, not, this... Guy will not be jealous that you said Stan Lynn love the show. Okay. Hey, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the score who tried to get you guys together on this show. Uh, I've been a follower of both of you for the 40 years. I'm 53 years old. And I wanted to, I never actually call the talk show. I listen all the time, but I'm one of those guys who's afraid to call type of deal. And when Twitter came around, it gave me a chance to really start tweeting people, you know? So Stan, you probably know me from tweeting all the time. And, uh, my name's Brian, you'll see. And I've tweeted Lynn or texted Lynn a lot watching her show. But I just wanted to take this time, because I have both of you on here, to thank both of you for giving me 40 years of excellent broadcasting. There are three talk show hosts in my lifetime and my listening radio, and I've always listened to the radio, that I've loved. Stan Saverin, Lynn Cullen, and Doug Hurth. And Doug's not here anymore. And I just wanted to take the time to thank both of you for giving me 40 years of joy, and hopefully it'll be another 20. Because oh, wow. I probably only have 20 years to go. But uh, thank you so much, and I wanted to get that in. And if any, anyone you, you want to give a Doug story, I'd appreciate that as well. Thank so thanks again. Thank I appreciate you. it. Bye. Well, thank you, Brian. That's very. Uh, wow. I'm flattered beyond belief yeah. to be in. Uh, Doug Hurth might have been the greatest talk show host ever. Um, yeah. Oh. He, yeah. uh, did, uh, I mean, Uncle, well, Uncle Dougie um, uh, worked at uh, TAE Radio, yeah. and I was still uh, marginally gainfully employed there. <laughs> uh, and I did a show at night, you know, following uh, following Cope. Right. And I had to go down to the radio studio one day, and um, for something I'd left down there, or whatever. You remember that also served as Cope's office. And um, I went down there. I was working the TV, and uh, Doug was doing his show, and I kind of tiptoed in there. And the studio was pitch black. I mean, he, he never had any lights on in there. Um, and I found, <laughs> and he also did the show barefoot often. Um, and and it's funny because a guy who's been producing my radio show now actually produced for for Doug for a time. So. We share those stories. He was, um, yes, he um, was. I don't know if you'll agree. I, he was just a great monologist, Lynn. I mean, he, you know, he could he could talk for hours. Um, and you know, I, I, you know, I've tried to develop that skill. Um, but but you know, Doug could talk for hours with you know on end. Well, he had a. He also had like a photographic memory. Everything he'd yep. ever read or seen or heard was in there and and retrievable. And he was a great raconteur, he was a great storyteller, and he was, I, yeah, there was none other uh, than, than he. You know, the lineup at TAE uh, was amazing, uh, and we didn't know it. We didn't know what we had then, <laughs> that uh, we were very lucky. 
I'm getting a, a question from a, a, an e uh, email here, wondering if you're getting any kickback uh, on your shows, on, on uh, your views on Trump, either by listeners or station managers, because the, this guy's imagining many of your, your fans are also Trump fans. Do you let it be um, known how you feel about him on, on, on your show? I don't. Um, when there was an intersection with the kneeling business yes. um, and he came out, um, I offered strong you know, opinions uh, about that, um, about how it was all designed to rile up the base. And, you know, I relay, but then I, I relayed the story, and I lear as I mentioned earlier, right. we were talking, I, I learned from some people you know, not not to dismiss how they feel. It was legit. I mean, as strongly as I felt about it, they felt strongly, and I I think that has to be respected. Um, you know what? I've gotten some digs in um, without mentioning names, um, and the, the feedback that I've gotten. I mean, I'm on Twitter. I, I'm, I'm I'm only on it for like an hour before my show starts, at, which is noon to two. Um, At 9.70 a.m., if people want, I mean, just in case you don't know where Stan is. Are, are you? Are yeah, you, uh, but don't tune in, don't tune in this week, because I took the entire month of August right. off. I go back the day after Labor Day, but um, uh, once 2 o'clock hits, I'm off Twitter. Uh, you know, I don't, it, it's not like I sit there and say, oh, that was a good TV show, and I feel the need to draw attention to myself by pointing that out, that some people, you know, just do that. Um, because for their own relevance. Um, but there have been occasions, and I'm a citizen too, last I checked, yep. um, where huh. I'll see something that really upsets me, angers me, of a political nature. Um, you know, the immigration situation, the border with the kids and, you know, uh, assault weapons. And I'll like something. And I, I don't fully understand how Twitter works totally, but I have gotten some feedback from people who said, you know what? Um, I, what, I tweeted something about, you know, getting assault weapons off the streets. Um, and some guy said, tweeted back and he said, I love you, Stan, but these leftist tweets, um, uh, I'm really getting sick of seeing them. Uh, you know, these likes that I was, you know, was hitting. And I, 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 I'm not getting into a, you know, Twitter war, uh, but I thought, what is leftist about wanting to get an AK-16 off the street? What, what is leftist about that? Yeah. Um, but I, I have gotten that, and I've gotten some, you know, generally tweets um, about, you know, half your audience, you know, conservative, and, you know, like they're looking out for my welfare and best interests, which I don't buy for a second. Hey, so Stan, that's the only time okay. that intersects. We're, we're running out of time. I, I know we had said to each other we could go for uh, hours and hours. Can can you I, – I, I meant to get some good old stories about Bino – and stuff can can we end on a great Beano story? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, you know, it's funny. It's um, October 11th. It'll be seven years already oh. since he passed away. It's, it's hard for me to believe that it's uh, it's been that long. Um, he, you know, the lines that he came up with. I mean, you know, they're you know they're just legendary. When he was the PR director at Pitt, uh, they were playing at Army. And at Nike, Mikey Stadium there in, in um, West Point, um, they have on, on the rim, inside rim of the stadium, it has like Guadalcanal, Iwo Jima, you know, all these famous battles. And Bino walked and he said, 
geez, that's the toughest road schedule I've ever seen. You know, <laughs> things, things like that. And when in, in, in when they released the Iran hostages, um, Bowie Kuhn was the commissioner of baseball um, at that time, um, and he gave all the survivors of the hostages lifetime baseball uh, passes to every major league game they wanted to go to. And Bino, who was not a big baseball fan, haven't they suffered enough? Uh, <laughs> and he, I've got time. He was he was a, the most generous man. He, he was like curmudgeonly. He liked that. He liked to be curmudgeon, but he had a heart uh, soft as gold. When he passed away, he donated virtually all his money to both Pitt and Kiskey, which is where he went to high school. But I, I remember this. You know, he used to be on with me and Guy on Sportsbeat um, once a week, and we would send a car to pick him up because Bino didn't drive. He had right. a license, but he, he didn't drive, which is probably good for all of us. Um, <laughs> And we have, at that time, some of them are still working with me today. There were a bunch of young kids just out of college, just entering TV, you know, camera guys and editors and directors and producers. And they were just out of college, and they weren't paying them anything. They were barely paying me and Guy anything at that point. Um, and Bino would come up, and one time his appearance, I forget it was Thursdays, I don't remember, he came up, and he would come and sit in, uh, in, in our little office there. We were broadcasting out of Channel 11, the old Channel 11 back then. And he put out a bunch of envelopes on the desk. And I said, what's that, Bino? He said, well, um, I wanted to take care of some because they, uh, everybody treated him reverentially, and they got him, you know, Diet Cokes. He drank Diet Coke all the time and everything else. And in the envelopes, Lynn, was cash for each and every one. And there must have been eight or nine of them of the younger kids who, you know, would treat him so respectfully when he came up. And that was a Christmas. And I found out afterwards that a couple people in particular who really dealt directly with him, there were, they got, he gave him over $500 in cash as a Christmas present. Wow. And I, I, I found that astounding. So, I mean, overall, there must have been, a, you know, $3,000 that he just gave away these you know young people that that we worked with you know uh, uh, at that time KBL um, and that's a side of Bino that very very few people ever saw what a oh man so many people that we missed we're out of time damn it I thank I, I thank you thank you for spending this hour with us it you're wonderful yeah I can you're a good talker Stan Saverin <laughs> <laughs> I suppose I got paid but I got paid by the word. I would have been retired by now. But yeah. I, I really, I loved it. And and anytime you feel like you want to do this again, um, especially for you, you know what I think of you and how much I think of you and how much I respect you. And I, I, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate um, our, our friendship and our, our professional relationship. Um, I'm always there. I'm always here for you. You're a dear. Thanks so much, Stan. And you'll you can hear Stan 9:70 a.m. starting up again after Labor Day, uh, from noon till two. You're the best. Thank you. Thanks, Lynn. Okay. Bye bye. 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 And uh, hope you enjoyed that. I sure as hell did. And uh, 